Good morning. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. Glad to be back, finally. I have been uh, all over creation the last several weeks, and I'm just not getting back into my routine. If you're new to the channel, this is Turfgrass Epistemology. We explore how we know what we know about turfgrass science. Sometimes it, what we find supports what we're doing. Sometimes we find evidence that does not support what we're doing, and we pursue that to whatever end it goes to. So welcome, Super TA, Andrew, Looney, Rich, Brady, Chad. Welcome. Thank you for attending we have uh we're moving into nitrogen and it is um apparently a desired topic so we'll see how far we go with that we could probably go over nitrogen every week for four years and not cover all the literature i mean it it's just too much it's a, there's a lot so this week, we're going to be talking a lot about natural organics. We have, all salute, we have a whole bunch of different nitrogen sources. But we're going to be talking about natural organics a fair amount this week, today, most likely tomorrow, and then Wednesday night. Wednesday night is going to be the cost paper, where we talk about the actual cost, what it, what it costs you to use these various nitrogen sources. Uh, so look forward to that on Wednesday night. Tonight, or today's paper, this morning, we're going to go over a paper that is a challenge, is a challenge to get through. <laughs> I'll just say that. It is, um, you got to be careful because the author is an extremely well-published and is far, far better scientist than I'll ever be. But the paper is a little bit challenging to to grasp and comprehend. So we'll get to that. It's a good paper. It's just not easy to read and follow sometimes. I have been getting several comments. So before we get to the paper, I want to go over a few housekeeping items. The Just to be clear, those of you who have been texting me and emailing me about fertilizer uh, prices and so forth, I don't sell fertilizers. I used to sell fertilizers. So I don't sell any fertilizers. I have no intention of ever selling fertilizers, at least on this channel. You never know where, where the future takes you, but I, I don't sell fertilizers. So if you're looking for a price on fertilizers from me, you're going to the wrong place. <laughs> Sorry. That is not what I do. I suggest you contact you know your local you know, co-op store or any of the turf grass supply stores can get you prices on that on those things. If you're doing custom blends, you know, usually they require a one ton minimum. And if you're capable of buying a ton, there's a number of different you know companies that'll do that for you. If you have a specific blend that, that you know you're not picking up at the local store and you want to get a price on a specific blend. There's a variety of different companies that'll do that for you, but I'm not one of them. So sorry about that. The, there's been several comments made, and uh, I will eventually get to those. I did a comments episode a month or so ago. It seemed like it was pretty well received. I may do 
I may do a comments in, in call-in show, I don't know, periodically. But please be assured, I'm not ignoring the comments. It's just that even though I'm retired, I'm quite busy. So I do read most of the comments, but I can't always just reply. And Sometimes I'd rather not reply in text form. I'd rather just reply on the show. So please send them. You know, just don't, don't feel I'm ignoring you. If you want to be sure that I get your message and that I am very likely to respond to it, use my uh, voicemail phone number, which is 859-444-4234. I never answer it during the day. Um, in fact, the only time I ever answer it is when the show is live and I have it, uh, have it opened. So it goes right to voicemail. And you can leave a voicemail on a question. And several of you have. And for those of you who have left those voicemails, thank you. Uh, if I have not replied to your voicemail, either via text or some other way, email or something, I will eventually get to it. And I will more than likely get to it on the show itself, on, on probably on a Wednesday night sometime. Once I get several of the voicemails sort of collected, I'll... I'll play them live and then answer the questions live. So I would prefer people use that method if you have a specific question that you want to ask me that you want to make sure that I respond to. I would prefer that you actually use the voicemail method because there's just so there's so many I mean I'm a very a fairly small channel at the moment but there's already so many comments and questions occasionally I just can't keep up with it. I'm just, it's just me here. So um, keep, keep that in mind. There have been a couple of comments and queries about me evaluating your, your nutrition programs, which I'm happy to do. Um, I do provide that service and I do it through my Calendly. The best way to do that is to sign up through Calendly. And the Calendly website looks like this. If you just go to calendly.com slash Travis Shaddix, you'll see this website come up. For those of you listening, I'm just looking at a website that has a link on it. It says Soil and Turfgrass Consulting. And if you go to this website and you click on it, click on the Soil Turfgrass Consulting, what will come up is my calendar. And the way this works is anything that goes on my calendar gets removed from this. So you're looking directly at the calendar that I have on my phone. And so if my wife puts something on there for me to go do, <laughs> which happens fairly regularly, it'll be taken off of this as an option for you to choose automatically. So if you see any open, open dates, like tomorrow, what's, oh wait, what's the date? The 5th. So on Wednesday this week, is I'm not available at all. And then the 19th, 21, 20, you can see that they're, they're, there's no, they're not available to choose. And then when you click on a date, let's say you click on February 8th, it comes up with a variety of times that are available for you to choose from. And if, and if you don't see a time there, that means somebody else has booked it or I have something going on with my family and I've put it on my calendar and it removed it for, as an option. Okay. So if you want to, if you prefer that or you want me to look at your nutritional program or there's some other thing that you want to specifically meet with me on one-on-one, -on -one, Calendly is the method that I use for that. 
and to be quite frank, the reason I use it is because I'm extremely lazy. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to keep up with everybody's stuff and calling me and, and saying, when can you meet? When can you not meet? And all these other things. So I just have Calendly do all that for me. I'm not, I'm not interested in keeping up with, you know, 15 different calendars and all this other stuff. I just put it on my calendar. You can see my calendar. You can see every date that's available and you don't even have to ask. You just go on there and you pick it and it automatically puts it on my phone. It'll automatically send you a meeting invite. It automatically sends me a meeting invite and it automatically sets up all the video and audio stuff, you know, in the background automatically. And then you and I meet face to face. So it's, it's working quite well, actually. So I, I do enjoy that. And that's the, that's the method that I use if you ever want to meet with me in person. Okay, the channel, I will probably do, um, let me get to this real quick here. I can get this back up. Um, oh, real quick. So Looney asked, do they still do one-ton minimums? Thought that was increased since COVID. I, I, Looney, I don't know. I mean, the company I used to work for, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm assuming they still do one-ton minimums. I don't know why they wouldn't. But company to company, that's going to be their decision to make. Once you get, you can't really do it below a one-ton because the blender itself usually is so large, it becomes very inaccurate to do anything less than a ton. But whether or not they've raised it is up to the company. I have no idea. Every company's different. So good question, though. Good morning, Valerio from Italy. Good afternoon to you then. It's probably, what, four in the afternoon, three in the afternoon there? Uh, so that's what I prefer. If you guys want to do, uh, contact me do uh, or meet with me, it's Calendly. If you want to make sure I respond to your voicemails or your comments or whatever, send me a, a voicemail. That's what I prefer. Now, the channel, um, there have been one or two, not many, but one or two people who have asked about um, supporting the channel and, you know, what they can do or can't do. I'm, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with the channel in terms of memberships. I don't really know if I really want to go down that road or not, because I'm not really sure what I would provide more than what I'm providing now, <laughs> to be frank. Um, but I've thought about it a few times, and I there there may be a membership sort of thing in the future for those people if you're if there really is an interest in you know supporting what I do and and getting more information a little bit more detailed information for example I do a lot of lectures and I thought maybe what I might do for people who are interested in supporting the channel and getting a little bit more detailed information is I might do a members only show and do the lecture so it's not like one article, I'm just going over an article. I'll actually do a lecture and provide a variety of different slides and you know what I would normally do to an audience, um, usually a paying audience, actually always a paying audience now that I think of it. Um, so I might do that if that's something of interest to you, if you all are willing to, you know, if it's, if it's interesting and you say, hey, you know, I would, I would be interested in doing that and paying more for it or paying anything for it. I don't know for I don't know how comfortable I am going down those roads of charging memberships to be frank but I don't know if there's enough interest in it I might pursue that just so you know what I'm doing now I've been gone for 
couple of weeks. I went down to Florida to Daytona and I gave a, gave two lectures at the SFMA sports field managers association. And the first one, I hadn't given a lecture in front of an audience. I gave one down in Naples maybe last year. I can't remember. But since COVID and since I retired, I don't really give lectures in front of a live audience that much anymore. Um, so anyway, I, I, I don't talk in front of live people anymore much. And that, but I went down to Florida and Daytona and I uh, gave a lecture. And the first day was really fun. I gave a lecture on soul testing. And uh, I ran into a uh, audience member who was an author on a paper that I talked about. And the, the paper that I talked about, I wasn't really, um, wasn't very flattering about the paper. The paper wasn't very good. And so I ran into that author and uh, it was an interesting conversation. So, uh, that was the first time I've ran into somebody face to face who wanted to ask me questions or wanted to have a conversation with me about something I've said on the channel. So I guess that's going to happen. Um, but I had fun. It was a good, good trip. I enjoyed the first day. And then what happened was I was scheduled to come back the next week here and do the show. And one of the authors at the golf course, golf course, super, golf course superintendent association of America, one of the authors, or one of the speakers there, had an unfortunate health situation in her family, and they lost the, um, uh, you know, they they didn't have a speaker. They lost that spot, they, and they were trying to fill the spot. And so they asked me to come give the lecture, and I said, sure, you know, that's fine, whatever. And then they told me it was a four-hour lecture. And I was like, oh, man. So that was, a, that was a unexpected. I don't sit around with four-hour soul testing lectures in my back pocket, okay? I could talk about soul testing for days, but I don't sit around with one sitting ready to go for four hours. So I gave, um, I saved, said I'd do it. And I, so I, I came home from Florida, and I jumped on an airplane and went out to Arizona and gave that lecture and I turned around the very next morning like the 7 a.m. flight out the next day I came back home like I said I'm I'm a homebody that's what I meant to say earlier I'm a homebody that came off completely wrong and so I came right back and gave a four-hour lecture out there and that <laughs> we'll see we'll see what the reviews are for that lecture it was an interesting day because I've sort of become a little bit more assertive with my approach to education with people. And I, and I think that's a result of a lot of nonsense happening in my industry. And, and that's a result of, I think, a, a, a passive approach to science. What I mean by that is, as scientists, I can speak for myself, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but as a scientist, when I was in academia, I was always sort of careful about what I said or how I said it because I didn't want to be wrong and and there's always it depends and you're not you know it's not every case is you can't say the same thing for every case and it's not always the same you know it's just you can't ever say for sure and because of that skepticism I was I was very 
passive about my approach. And what I think I've realized is that that approach has resulted in the situation we're in now in the turfgrass industry, where it's dominated by nonsense, dominated by BS. Because in the in the in the business world, in the industry part of our in, of our discipline, they don't have those same moral ba- boundaries or ethical boundaries. They can they say whatever they want to say, and whether it's supported by evidence or not is irrelevant. It's secondary. So they say whatever they want to say. They'll go out and say you should spread natural organics all over the place, and it'll cure all your problems because it's natural. And then here we are, a scientist on, and they have a huge platform. They have a huge voice because they're always out in front of people. And as scientists, we're dealing with students and committees and you know faculty senates and just writing and editing and all these things. You know, we're busy. We're not in front of people all the time like they are. And when we are in front of people, I I found that I was more passive. I wouldn't really stand my ground and say no, this is not true or whatever the case is. You know. And so lately I've been more assertive. I mean, I don't know why we can't meet the the industry's you know assertive BS with science's assertive truth. Right? It's just you know, we have to be careful if if you want if as a scientist if you want to maintain your integrity and, and maintain the you know the what you're saying to be within the boundaries of you know the evidence. We have to be careful how we say it. For example, I can't say natural organics don't um, don't uh, increase phosphorus in the soil. I can't say they won't do that because that's a negative, right? But I can say I'm not convinced they will, right? That's different than that. So it's different between saying you're 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 innocent. The judge declares you innocent, which is never the case. It always they always declare you not guilty. So I just think we have to be more assertive on the way we speak and speak more, more, more solidly. And I think that would help curb some of this misinformation that exists in our industry. And so that's what I've been doing. That's what I did at the GCSAA. <laughs> There's a question asked in the meeting. The guy raised his hand, super nice guy. And he ended up coming to me after the, after the lecture and having a conversation with me. And I was talking about, um, soil testing philosophies and how some of the philosophies are used in my opinion by salesmen and companies to sell more product not necessarily to alleviate some soil deficiency or toxicity or something in the soil and he raised his hand and said um so do you think the company or the person's coming in and just saying that to get money from us and i said of course, sure, yeah, but how? That's not a problem. I'm a capitalist. They're there to make money. You're there to make money. Your course is there to make money. As a as a lawn care operator, you're there to make money. You show up at the house. You're not there shaking their hand and being friends with them. You're there to provide a service and make money. I'm not a communist. So, yeah, there's no. I don't have any problem with any salesman or any any company or any sport turf manager or saw production doing what they do to make a profit that's what we do it's capitalism where my line's drawn 
is when that that company or salesman comes in to make a profit, make make money off of the customer, which is fine, but they do so providing information that they know to not be true, or if they're not conf- or they're not sure that it is true and they don't care about it, they just say it to convince you and then take the money. That's where my line's drawn. Personally, I think that's the problem. So I don't have a problem coming in to make money. That's what they do. They provide goods and services to make make a profit. That's capitalism. But I think there needs to be some sort of moral or ethical boundary made. And in, 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 in science, there's a scientific boundary that we follow. But in business, I don't think they follow the same boundaries. And that's where I come in, I guess. It just, that's where I have a problem. So that's, that's what I told him. And I said, yeah, they don't have, I don't have a problem with them coming in and making money. It's that they're coming in and making money, providing misinformation. They're convinced that base count saturation is the way to go when there's zero evidence to, to support that. And there's a mountain of evidence to refute it. And, what, and I'll explain that when we get into soil testing in a couple of months. So that's what I did out in Arizona. I was gone for a couple of weeks and um, it was, you know, unexpected but fun. And now I came back today and I couldn't even, couldn't remember how to do all this stuff. I was sitting there trying to figure out the buttons and where do I put this and where do I put that? And I'm changing them, some things the way I manage the, the, the show. And it's like, man, I got to get back in the swing of things. Having said that, let's get back in the swing of things. Today's paper is going to be a little bit challenging to go over, but it is what it is. Um, I'm going to do my best to go over it. It's entitled Turfgrass Response to Slow-Release Nitrogen Fertilizers. And it is not the easiest thing to to digest, this particular paper. Um, it is what it is, but I'll, I'll do my best to to get through it without messing it up. I have a little cheat sheet here to make sure I kind of keep track of everything because it, it is fairly robust and complicated. Okay, it's it was published by Dr. Carroll in 1997. So you already know that it's going to be, you know, a a good paper because Dr. Carroll's obviously a very accomplished scientist and like I said far better than I'll ever be. And it was published in Agronomy Journal in 1997. Okay. And uh, we're going to go through it here real quick. I've highlighted quite a bit of it, but I will do my best to make it as easy to comprehend. But I can assure you this before we get started. There is a really good chance I'm going to screw this up. <laughs> I'm just being frank. So, you know, don't forget, I'm showing you the paper. I'm providing my, my insight on the paper. But you can go download the paper yourself or at least be a member of the ASA and download it or at the library and get it. So don't go by what I'm saying about this paper because I'm, I am flawed. I'm, you know, going to be... I'm going to make mistakes, and this paper is probably going to be an example of that. So let's get started. Nitrogen fertilization is one of the primary turfgrass culture, practi- turf culture practices. Okay, turfgrass growers use a variety of nitrogen sources broadly categorized as quick or slow release, but with several subclasses within, the, within these categories. Uh, I, got a, I got a visitor. Hopefully, hopefully that he don't, they don't, uh, they don't keep going. Anyway. An understanding of the nitrogen release pattern for a specific nitrogen source is essential for determining rate and frequency of application, especially on new types of nitrogen sources are developed as they're developed. 
So that's one of the key points is that you've already heard of right, right source, right rate, right timing, and so forth. All these nitrogen sources that I've mentioned can result in, and very likely will result in acceptable turf grass. And very few people are going to deny that. Okay, nitrogen sources um, will result in an, an acceptable turf grass, but it's got to be applied at the right rate for that product, at the right time for that product, and so forth. So if you're going to be using, say, urea, you might go out at three quarters of a pound or a pound in. If you're going to be using a polymer coated 40 or 41, which is more of a nursery grade product, you would never use that in turf. And you went out at a three quarters of a pound in or a pound in, you wouldn't see a turf grass response to the polymer coat because it's far too slow to release. And to get that turf response, you need more pounds on the ground to see that result or that response. And that's what they're saying here. Okay. So, um, it's important that you understand the release characteristic of the fertilizer. They're going to talk about each each fertilizer. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but basically um, they talk about sulfur coats, and then I'm going to, I'm going to talk about urea form, the, the reactive products in milorganite. Uh, urea formaldehyde reactions pro products can vary from quick release methylene ureas to long chain urea, uh, UF forms with long term nitrogen characteristics. So long-chain urea formaldehyde carriers have received extensive research. Are they using UF as, yeah, urea formaldehyde, okay. Extension research and are known to provide limited initial response. Attempts to improve initial response include incorporation of urea and or methylene ureas and splitting applications of shorter-chain urea formaldehyde carriers for initial plus long-term response. Comparative results on these options are of, are of interest to turf managers. So if you're not familiar with what urea formaldehydes are or methylene ureas, is they are the product of reacting uh, uh, urea with formaldehyde. And when they react that, it actually precipitates out a, a crystalline, a solid phase, essentially. And so no matter how many times you cut that and split it up and whatever, it's still going to have some slow-release properties to it. And essentially what they're doing is they're taking urea and they're binding carbon onto it. And so when they say long chain or short chain, the more carbons that you have attached to that, the slower it is to break down. And the fewer carbons you have, the quicker release it is. So they'll just keep reacting it, reacting it, and it will form, you know, longer chain products. And they're slower to break down. The microbes take longer to break that down. Okay, so that's what they're talking about when they talk about urea formaldehyde. It's not a coated material. All right, it's a solid material that's slow release on on, you know, regardless of how many, how small the particle is, the uh, the particle size will have an influence because the smaller particle sizes have more surface area and they have more interaction with microbes that have more opportunities to break that product down. So if you take a urea formaldehyde, you think of a bowling ball. Let's say one granule was the size of a bowling ball. But the same mass of product was split up in this, and there was their size of, say, talcum powder. Obviously, the talcum powder size product would break down more readily because the bowling ball, the, the microbes only have access to the surface of the ball, whereas in the talcum powder size material, they have a lot of more interaction, a lot more interaction with all the, the surface area of that, that product. Milorganite, a natural organic, has been widely used and evaluated on turf since 1950. Recently, other nitrogen sources have been marketed, marketed with all or part of the nitrogen form from natural organic sources. Some products include urea and ammoniacal nitrogen, or methylene urea nitrogen to provide more rapid initial response with the natural organic nitrogen component, providing longer term in release. 
So they're blending it with soluble in or slow release in of these natural organic products is what they're saying. So the natural organics generally are very slow to respond. And when they blend in some urea, sometimes you'll see a, a more uniform response. These are sometimes called bridges, bridge products. I've never really come across that phrase recently, but I guess that's what they used to use, a bridging product, the phrase. While the characteristics of natural organic nitrogen carriers are often presented in popular literature, published research data are limited. Peacock and Daniel did evaluate one such product versus urea and observed slower initial and intermediate nitrogen release, but similar long-term performance. Knowledge of the performance of natural organic nitrogen sources in bridge products relative to milorganite and urea would be beneficial. Okay. Um, so natural organics, really even urea from aldehydes, even polymer coats, really any slow release material, if it's slow enough, is going to have a very slow start. Their turf response in the first week or two, depending on where you're at and the rate you apply, is, is not going to be anywhere near urea. It's going to, you're going to see, not going to see anything happen for a week or two in some cases. And then you'll start to see the turf respond later. And what they're saying is adding a little bit of soluble in in the beginning will help help that turf response occur a little earlier and still have some longevity to the product. The objectives of this product project uh, were to evaluate initial and long-term nitrogen release of several nitrogen sources in, in, as demonstrated on Bermuda grass in summer as one in the nitrogen class within each carrier was categorized and two across nitrogen classes. So when he says classes, what he's referring to is like polymer coated urea would be one class. Natural organics would be another class. Sulfur coated would be a different class and so forth. That's what he's talking about. So within each class and across classes, turf grass performance from urea was the baseline for comparison of special interest were the newly developed polymer coated fertilizers. So he's going to compare a bunch of different fertilizer classes and fertilizers within classes to, um, to each other, but also to urea. The study was conducted in 1994 and 1995 in Griffin, Georgia. A di okay, so they talk about the locations, and then it says uh, one location, and then it said a different site was used each year to eliminate the potential for residual nitrogen. So if, if you have like a urea formaldehyde and you apply like a really, really long chain urea formaldehyde, it might not break down much in the first year, but if you keep adding and adding and adding to it, the, the theory was that you can sort of build up a residual amount of nitrogen. And they are saying that in this particular study, they weren't interested in measuring that. They're just interested in seeing what happens during that one application season. And they saw that and then they moved the site probably just laterally sideways to the next plot over. And then they, then they did the study again the next year. Tiffway Bermuda grass on the study area was mowed at 1.6 centimeters until midsummer, after which the mowing height was 1.9 centimeters. Irrigation was applied to prevent moisture stress symptoms to work on some stuff here guys hang on a second okay nitrogen carriers included in this project were classified into one of four groups polymer coated ureas pol uh, polymer coated sulfur coated urea polymer coated urea urea formaldehyde and natural organics and then of course they had urea i don't know why they didn't include that but i guess that's just the control they, they were talking about nitrogen carriers in the urea formaldehyde reaction product class range from 100 percent urea Oh, so they encountered they included urea as a UF. Oh, well, that's okay. That's whatever. To methylene ureas, long chain urea formaldehydes and combinations of isobutylidine diurea, which is IBDU. In the last category, the natural organic component varied from 100 to 16% of the nitrogen. I'll go over all that stuff in a second. 
Almost all the treatments were applied at two pounds of per thousand at the end of May 1994 or the beginning of June in 1995, or and the beginning of June 1995. So they applied two pounds at the beginning of summer. And the next year they did the same thing. It, with the exception of they had some products that were split. Urea, they had one product, uh, one treatment that was urea applied one pound and then another one pound later during the summer. And they did that with urea. They did that with urea formaldehyde. And they did that with a second urea formaldehyde. They had two different urea formaldehydes. And they, like I said, they applied one pound in, in late May. And then applied one pound um, in 1st of July of each year, basically. So they did one, basically one at the very beginning of summer and then one a month later. Okay. Ure, urea and coron. Coron is a liquid reacted product that's a liquid. It hasn't been reacted that long. So it has just very limited slow release properties and it's still in a liquid form. They were considered quick release formulations. Oh, it says right here. Coron, a liquid fertilizer, was applied to the CO2 backpack sprayer. Okay. Over a 13 week period each year, the following observations were made. They measured shoot height, visual quality, total mowings, and total plant growth. And the reason they, they include this mowing and plant growth, because oftentimes I get this, actually, I got this question last week. Well, I understand what you're saying about the, oh, and I guess it was at the, at the SFMA. Um, I understand what you're saying, but did you get any scalping from urea? Are you getting any scalping from the soluble end sources? And occasionally that will happen, but more frequently it doesn't happen. If, especially if you're mowing once a week, particularly if you're definitely, if you're mowing twice a week on sport turf. Anyway, they measured mowings, like how many times did you have to mow it in total plant growth with these various nitrogen sources. Turf quality was based on visual rating um, on a scale of one to nine, where one was no live turf and nine was ideal shoot density, color, and uniformity. This, they, what they did was they used, they didn't state it in the text, but down here in the graphs, they have a line that I'll show you in a minute where six was the minimum acceptable limit. And that's going to become critical as we move through this. Six was the minimum level that of acceptable turf grass that they used, even though they didn't technically state it in the text. Total mowing were recorded based on the number of times the turf reached a threshold shoot height value of 40% greater than the base mowing height. I'm not sure how they measured that exactly, but um, it, once the turf got to a certain height, they cut it. Okay, so they didn't ever let it really get greater than 40% um, greater than the base mowing height. And so they cut it. And then each time they cut it, they counted it as one mowing event. I'm going to get to the, all the nitrogen sources in a second. I'm going to get through the materials and methods, and I'll go back to the table that talks about them. To compare nitrogen carrier influence on turf grass performance over the whole 13-week evaluation period in 94 and 95, three criteria were used, namely total shoot growth, number of mowings, and average turf grass quality. These data, however, do not provide insight into the variation in turf grass response to nitrogen carrier over time. To show initial and long-term responses, turf grass visual quality over the study periods of both years are presented in figure one and two, and also in table two as a summary of over both years of nitrogen carrier influence on turf quality for the initial 30 days, the intermediate between 31 and 60 days, and then the long-term 61 through 95 day periods based on, com on comparisons with turf performance under the under area treatment, urea being a quick release in care. Of particular interest were the percent of visual quality ratings equal to or greater than urea. Now, this is going to get a little bit complicated. So and this is where I'm going to screw this paper up. I'm just being frank. The, the, what happened was there were so many treatments 
and over two years and so many comparisons, he he part, he grouped them together. He pulled the data together in these time periods, like the initial time period he's talking about the first month, the intermediate was the second month, and the long term was the third month. And then he want then they measure or he he provides a number that was greater than or equal to urea. And then in the third month, he talks about less than or less than urea. And and I'm going to do my best to explain that. So basically the number of rating events that occurred during that month that were greater than or equal to urea. Then at the 61 to 95 day timeframe, he measured what was, uh, oh, greater than, I thought he did less than urea. Where was that? Oh, he did greater than urea. Okay, so it's greater than urea or greater than or equal to urea on both on all the time frames. Sorry, see, I'm already screwing it up. It I've never really seen that metric before. I'm going to show you right here. There's a metric percent greater than urea and percent percent greater than or equal to urea, and then he has like the number the seasonal turf quality responses by response period. So the number of responses that he rated during that time period that met that criteria. It's a bit of a curious metric. Uh, never come across that, and it's not easy to quite grasp, to be frank. But anyway, th that's all the materials and methods. So let me talk about the products, and I'll kind of summarize the materials and methods so we're all on the same page. Now, the products that he used are here in Table One for those listening. I'm gonna go through it. Ta the polymer-coated, sulfur-coated ureas, where they used the Lesco Poly Plus, used three different brand, uh, grades of that. He used a standard, a mini, and a greens grade SCU, and they went from 39. All the way down to 2900 was the analysis. Okay. Then he used the Scott's Poly S. He used three or four different um, varieties of that. One was a mini and then two greens grades. And they went from anywhere from 25, I guess it's a 25412, a 21314, and an 18218. So it was a blended fertilizer. But the, the nitrogen component uh, were those analyses 25, 21, and 18. So that he has six different sulfur-coated products in here. All right. Then he goes into the polymer-coated category. And these are, and, and this is one reason why I, I sort of hesitated, and I've delayed even talking about nitrogen, because a lot of the older papers, they contain nitrogen sources that don't exist anymore. Um, they contain nitrogen sources that do exist, like, for example, um, molorganite. But they'll have polymer-coated ureas and sulfur-coated ureas, and I don't, I don't want people to walk away from any of these papers, particularly these older papers, and say, okay, Dr. Shaddix went over a paper that talked about polymer-coated ureas, and it showed that they didn't really do much, and so I'm not going to use them. Well, that was from 1980 or 1990, and they don't, those polymer-coated ureas don't really exist in that same form anymore. So, And the same thing goes for sulfur coat. So the sulfur coat that we use nowadays has only been around, well, the, the, the big player on the block has only been around for maybe, I want to say it came in the market around 2009-ish or something like that, 8-ish XCU. Of course, we have the older sulfur coats as well. But there's some of them in there, but not many. Okay, so these older sulfur coats, when they say, it's a 3900 or 2900 or whatever the case might be. Keep in mind that 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 has been that was a generation ago. I mean, in generations in terms of nitrogen sources, that was a long, long time ago. There's been many 
advancements since then. So that's one reason I'm hesitated to go over this stuff because I don't want people to walk away and say, oh, sulfur coat works great or sulfur coat doesn't work great. Well, that was this paper and understand that these products in this paper, many of them have evolved or simply don't exist anymore. Okay. All right, so the Vigoro, here's a perfect example, Vigoro polymer-coated urea. I'm not even sure if Vigoro still makes this or not. It's the mini V-coat product. I doubt, I doubt you could even find this. And then the United Horticultural Supply, the UHS um, product, which is a 60-day release or 150-day release product from the, the polymer-coated urea. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find those two polymer coats anywhere. Nowadays, it's dominated by, I guess, Coke makes. I don't know who's making duration nowadays, but... And then, of course, Harold's owns Polyon. So you're talking about, uh, you know, the big players on the block being Duration, Polyon, and there's a whole slew of polymer coat. There's probably 15 different brands of polymer coats that are on the market nowadays that didn't exist even 10 years ago. So, well, I'm getting old. I guess 15, 20 years ago now. Okay, and then he goes into the urea formaldehyde, the reacted products. You're talking about urea, Coron, the liquid. And then he goes into the Agrivo uh, neutraline chip products product and then he has an mpk triform and then he has a vigoro blend of uf and ibdu so let me go through this briefly the coron is 50 percent urea and the remainder polymethylene urea methylene urea and the monomethylol methylol urea rapid release that's the liquid okay and so the next one is the neutraline chip. It's 13% soluble urea and 51% methylene polymers and then 36% urea. So all the rest of these are going to be a blend of urea and then a reacted urea. And he's got six of them on here. So six reacted urea products. One of the, the Scott's MPK triform was 58% urea and then a 30% methylene and 2% UF. And then he, he actually, there's actually a blend of IBDU in here as well. So there's this, this, Vigoro UFIBDU is 60% nitrogen from, um, from UF and then 40% nitrogen from IBD. Oh, so it's, it's UF, not urea. So it's just UF and then IBD. So it's a blend of urea formaldehyde and IBDU. And the next one's the same, which is a different percentage blend. And then the Agrivo UF is 2% nitrogen from urea and then 28% from methylene urea. It, it just, this is one reason why it's a little bit more complicated than it needed to be. There's so many products in here, and some of the products have blends of the raw materials in here, where it's methylene ureas and urea formaldehydes and urea in here, and it's just a lot going on. And you know how we would actually determine, you know, what would be a recommendation is going to be challenging. All right. Then he gets into the natural organics. Nat well, natural organic one was millorganite, so we're going to talk a lot about natural organic one, which is a millorganite. Then natural organic two. Is a is the like the the blood mill feather mill, you know that type of product. It's a it's a poultry blend. It's a grounded up poultry, ground up chicken waste is what it is. Okay, and we're all very familiar with those types of products. The name of this product was Ringer's Lawn Restore, and it was a ten looks like it was like a ten two five or oh here it is ten two six. Of course, the milligram was a six two zero back then. Nowadays, you might find six four zeros. And then N3 was a blend of ammoniacal sources, urea, methylene ureas, water-soluble organics, and then they blended in hydrolyzed poultry meal. And so it's a blend of all sorts of stuff with natural organics in it. And then the N4 had 45% nit uh, nitrogen from urea. And the same thing, a blend of ammoniacal sources and hydrolyzed poultry, poultry meal. 
So just from the start, <laughs> generally speaking, when we do nitrogen product you know, studies, we try to just use the raw material because we want to know like what influence we're going to have from, from just the sulfur coat or just the polymer coat or just the natural organic. We generally would do that. And he has many of those in this study. But there's also a blend. There's a whole host of products that have a blend of methylene ureas and urea formaldehydes together in the same application. And that's where it can kind of get a little bit much, and much more difficult to pull things out. And then the manner in which we, he presents it is also a little bit challenging to comprehend sometimes. So just to kind of set the stage here, we're in Georgia in 1994 and 1995 on Bermuda grass. We're applying nitrogen at the beginning of the summer for two pounds on many of the products. We're also applying nitrogen at the beginning of the summer and then in the 1st of July on a handful of other products, primarily the sol some of the soluble products. Okay, we're running it for two years. We're measuring, you know, quality and growth rate and so forth. And there's about, let's see, 4, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, There's a little over 20 treatments. So you can do the math real quick, and there's four applications. So 20 treatments, let's say there's a little over 20. There's at least 80 plots out there. Okay. Did you have the plot size on here? He probably has the plot size on here somewhere. I just can't find it. Here it is. One and a half meters by three meters. So, you know, there's a lot of space. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. It's big. It's a big, big study. And um, with a lot of treatments, a lot of reps, and a lot of measurements, and so forth. Okay, so let's get into the results in the schedule. Let me look at the, the chat real quick, make sure I'm not missing any questions. Um, I haven't really, it's hard for me to keep up with the chat. Um, but before we get into the results and methods, let me read it real quick and see if I'm, there's anything anything um, I need to respond to. I don't see. Okay, I'll respond to some of those at the end. Those are not about, the, about that study. Okay. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to go slow because I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not going to be easy for me to get through this. It is, it is not easy. Okay. It is, um, with all due respect, I mean, like I said, he, Dr. Carroll has forgotten more about turf grass science than I'll ever know. It has nothing to do with him as a, I mean, he, you know, this stuff is a, there's a lot of work here. I don't know how I would present this data any better. I mean, there's this much data. There's a, there's, it's challenging to present it in a, you know, a way that is easily grasped, but I'll do my best to read through it. Okay. And there's a lot of acronyms. So everything's re referred to in, in acronyms that are coded in that table. So it, you just have to bear with me as I try to use the acronym to explain what treatment it was so you understand what what it was instead of saying pcscu one two and three i need to i'm going to do my best to explain it so the lesco poly plus the standard mini and greens grade lesco poly plus which is the sulfur coat um, formulations differed in particle size and percent coating composition mowing requirements and average annual visual quality were similar to urea both years okay you're going to see this a whole lot okay so the, the three the three polymer coat sulfur coated ureas from lesco were the visual quality and mowing requirements were similar to urea for both years there's going to be that's going to repeat it at least two or three more times in this study 
In other words, the mowing requirements did not increase because you applied urea at two pounds compared to a slow release until and compared to these a sulfur coated slow release. The quality of the turf was no better using the sulfur coated ureas from Lesco than it was from straight urea. So what it says right here. Mowing requirements in average annual, the average annual visual quality were similar to urea in both both years. Okay. This is going to be a common theme throughout the next several papers, to be honest. When you're comparing nitrogen sources, and when you're when you're looking at a turf grass response to a nitrogen source, it's imperative that it's that you do the compare the comparison accurately and fairly but you also need to conclude a reference material and almost it's almost always urea could be ammonium sulfate because if you don't do that i'm going to show you right in this study where you're going to see a turf grass response to all these nitrogen sources including molorganite it's going to go up turf grass quality is going to go up that's just one part of the picture what I care about, because I'm paying more for that product, I'm paying more for melorganite per pound of nitrogen than any of these any of these products on the on the list. With besides maybe one of the other natural organics, the natural organics you're going to pay more for than any other ni nitrogen source per pound of nitrogen, which is perfectly fine. I don't mind paying more for it, but you need to get more in return. Okay. So in this study, we're not going to talk about cost. We're going to talk about responses. And you're going to see this paper and many other papers, the response to these, the turfgrass response to these slow-release sources is in many time, many cases, many times, consistent with the response that you'd get just from using urea. And that's what he says right at the very first sentence. No, the second sentence. The second sentence of the result says mowing requirements and average annual visual quality was similar to urea. Okay. The sulfur coated urea one and two also had lower sulfur and polymer coating weighting and polymer coating weights at 61 days and 95, 61 to 95 days. So three months out, the best long-term performance occurred from the smaller particle size carrier, which had the highest percent weight of sulfur and polymer coating. This illustrates that the sulfur coat carrier, a more rapid nitrogen response is necessary, is not necessarily associated with smaller particle size. Instead, the nature of the coating dominates nitrogen release from these sulfur coats with a higher percent of sulfur and polymer coat resulting in longer term release. Similar observations were made by another, 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 another work. So what they're saying is it's a heavier coated, more polymer, more sulfur, you're going to get longer-term release. It's not rocket science. The sulfur coat four, which is sulfur coat four, and then the Scott's Poly S, the both the greens grade Poly S materials, resulted in total shoot growth similar to urea in '94 '95, except for the 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 eighteen to eighteen which had 73% greater shoot growth than urea 95. So they had the same response to urea as urea, except for that um, the one 18218 uh, Scott's polyas had greater in 95. Average visual qualities, <laughs> here it is again, average visual quality ratings were similar to urea and mowing requirements were plus or minus one mowing compared to urea. 
So we've looked. That's so that's the sulfur coat. Both the um, Scots and the Lesco mowing was the same. Mowing requirements were basically the same. Annual average turf grass quality was the was the same. So my question to you all as the audience: Why would you pay more for a product if your if the evidence indicates? that the return on that investment is the exact same. You're not going to get any, so you're going to spend $100 on a stock and it's going to go, it's going to stay where it is at 100 Well, that doesn't really work. That analogy doesn't really work. I mean, if, if you know the stock is not going to go up, why would you buy it? You know, you need to get something in return for that additional cost. And in this paragraph, and the next paragraph, they say there was no real there, the quality was the same, the mowing was the same. I mean, you you would if if said the mowing went down by two mowings or something, that would be an indication that from the from the sulfur coat that would be an indication perhaps that the slow release nitrogen sources are a little bit more consistent and you're not it's not scalping or it might be an indication that urea is resulting in more growth and that's that's resulting in scalping, but that's not what happened. And you're going to see that same thing happen in the study on Wednesday night where the quality was basically the same. Okay. All right, let's go to Scott's UF, the UF3 product, which is the 18918, the, uh, the, this is the urea, methylene urea blend. Scott's UF3 with Triform is not a polymer-coated product, but was included as a comparison for the two Scott's Poly S products. Both of these use the NPK triform formulation of urea and methylene ureas as the core instead of 100% urea. The UF3 product, the Scott's in, okay, so the 181918, 918, the UF3 resulted in 86% of the visual quality ratings being greater than or equal to urea at 0 to 31 days. So this, but polymer coated reduced the initial response to 29% and 14, 29% and 14%. It's a little bit challenging for me to understand when you're going to say greater than or equal to urea. It's, I don't, I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong page here. So this is where I'm talking about guys. I'm mean, going to show these graphs in a second, but the U.S. you know, when you're talking about greater than or equal to urea, if you're going to say 100, let's say this, in this particular, in, in this particular case, it says 86% of the visual quality ratings were 80 or greater than or equal to urea during the first month from the, from the Scott's MPK Triform product, which is 58% urea and 30% methylene urea, 2% urea formaldehyde. It's difficult for me to really grasp the value in that statement because you could say 100% of the time the ratings were greater than or equal to urea. Well, what you could, that's, that, that, that could be true. But you could also, but what if, what if the 100% it was greater than or equal to urea? What if it was also 100% of the time only equal to urea? Then I wouldn't, that would be more meaningful to me. In other words, I can't tell when you're saying greater than or equal to urea, how many of the times it actually exceeded urea. I want to know how many times it was greater than urea, not just greater than or equal to. Because if it's equal to urea, I'm paying more for it. I'm not getting anything in return for it. So that's one reason it's a little bit difficult and challenging to make my way through this paper because I don't, particularly care 86% visual quality ratings greater than or equal to urea 
in the first month. What it's saying is basically it was equal to or equal to or greater than your 86% of the time in the first month. Well, okay. Well, how many times did it exceed urea? Or how many times was it less than urea? Or how many times was it exactly equal to urea? It's a little bit odd, so I'm sorry. Anyway, during, uh, during the second month, 100% of the ratings were equal to or greater than urea for the, i got to get to this, for the Scott's Poly S greens grade product and the 58%, 30, 30% methylene urea blend product. So all the time they were at least as good as urea and some, and, or better. But again, I don't know how to read that. But 50% of the sulfur coat and 75% of the, of the Scott's Poly S sulfur coat. Oh, but 50% for the sulfur coat and 75% for the Scott's Poly S sulfur coat. Man, this is, that's what I'm saying. This is just so complicated. Good God. But three, man, hang on. During the third month, the sulfur coat and the Scott sulfur coat carriers resulted in quality ratings greater than urea 43 to 57% of the time. While the, so that means something to me. And while the uncoated Scott's MPK UF3, so the reactive one, had only 14% of the ratings. You know what? I may just skip a lot of this stuff and just show you the graphs because it's so convoluted. And, and, and difficult, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to mess it up and I'm probably going to end up talking about the wrong information. Let me, let me just explain using this table. Okay. It's just easier for me to explain using this table and then I'll go to the summary. When you look at the table two, for those listening, and don't worry, I'll explain it in words. There's a whole list of the nitrogen sources on the left-hand side, and there's a total shoot growth column, mowing requirement column, average visual quality for the entire year of 94, 95, and then seasonal turf quality responses. Okay, so these are the different columns. And what you do is you look through down through here, and you're going to see little um, uh, superscripts or subscripts and indicating that there was a difference. And every time you see one, they're comparing it to urea at the top. So, for example, total shoot growth in 94 was 7.63. I didn't want to cover that up now. 7.63 millimeters. No, total shoot growth. Everything that does not have a, den a denotation, it's not noted, was the same as urea. So the only thing that differed was the UF2, the split UF2 product, which is the neutraline chip, which contained urea and methylene urea and urea from aldehyde, and it was split into two, two one-pound applications. That resulted in reduced growth compared to urea. Okay. The UF4, the 3600, which is the Vigoro UF IBDU blend. So you're blending um, urea from aldehyde and IBDU. That resulted in reduced growth. Okay. The UF6, which is the 3800, and that is the 2% from urea, 28% from methylene urea. So it's a blend of methylene urea and urea from aldehyde. That resulted in a greatly reduced growth compared to straight urea. And then the natural organic one, right here is milorganite, it resulted in a reduced growth during 1994 and 1995. Okay. I'm just going to do it like this. Those texts were, reading that text is really confusing. 
So just remember, N1 is the natural is natural organic uh, milorganite. N2 is the bone mill, feather mill, and stuff like that, blood mill, and all that stuff. And what we're what we're going to look for here in total shoot growth is it is when we see total shoot growth being whatever it is, it's certainly an indicator that the nitrogen is resulting in uptake or the uh, uptake in, into the plant and increasing the, the growth rate and so forth. You don't necessarily want very very high shoot growth, um, but it's an indicator that the nitrogen is is the turfgrass is responding to the application of nitrogen. In some cases, you wouldn't want a lot of growth. In some cases, you would want a lot of growth. But in this case. The natural organic, the, the milorganite, is, in both years is resulting in a reduction in growth compared to straight urea. And many of the other products are resulting in a reduction in the first year. Now, in the second year, one of the sulfur coats here, the 2900 sulfur coat, which is the, the greens grade sulfur coat, it resulted in a little bit more growth than urea. The Scott's Poly S, the 18218 greens grade, it resulted in more growth than urea in the second year. And then we have none of the polymer coats resulted in more growth in the first year, but two of them resulted in more growth in the second year, those being the Vigoro 4300 and the UHS 150-day release resulted in more growth in the second year. Again, these products aren't really available anymore, so I, like I said, I hesitate using them. The split application of urea and the split application of uh, UF1, which is the Coron, they resulted in more growth in the second year. So you can go through down through here and see there's several products in here that resulted in more growth the second year. It, when there were differences in the second year, there, were, there was more growth. When there was more, when there was differences in the first year, there was less growth. Okay. Look at the number of mowing requirements. See if I can get this off here. The number of mowing requirements is seven for urea in the first year and five for urea in the second year. And nowhere in here. None of, the, none of the nitrogen sources resulted in fewer mowings or greater mowings than the mowing requirements that occurred from urea. So in other words, urea didn't result in this massive amount of growth that required more mowings. Okay? The average visual quality, which is I, I put a lot of weight in. I know there's some scientists that don't do that. But the average visual quality of urea in the first year was 6.7. The second year was 6.8. The minimum acceptable was six. I'm going to show you the individual date graphs in a second. Having said that, when you look through here, there's only one, if I remember correctly, there's only one product that resulted in an increase in quality compared to urea. Every other difference, either there was either no uh, difference from urea or there was a reduction in quality compared to urea. And the one that resulted in an increase compared to urea was this UF3-18918. And the UF3-18918 was the Scott's MPK Trioform that had 58% urea in it. And then 30% methylene urea and 2% urea formaldehyde. So this, in the first year, was this, you're not going to see this difference biologically. It's a 6.9 up from a 6.7. And then a 7 up from a 6.8. So biologically, you're never going to see that difference. But statistically... There was an increase in the turf average visual quality in turf grass from this product that contained 58% of the product as urea. Okay, and then it had a little bit of slow release in there. Okay, every other time there was a reduction or nothing in, in the average quality. So if you look down here at mill organite and you look down here at the other natural organic that was the bone mill feather mill, the average visual quality for the first year 
was a 6.3 and down from a 6.7. You probably won't see that, but you might. And then it's almost a half point. And then the next year it was the same thing, 6.4 down from a 6.8. So in both years, in this study on Bermuda grass in Georgia, when they used milorganite or they used another natural organic, the quality of the turf was acceptable. No question. It's 6.3 and 6.4 and 6.4 and 6.5 for those products in those years. So that's what I'm saying when I tell you if you're going to apply natural organics, you're probably going to see a response. You're probably going to have acceptable turf grass. There's very little doubt. But you're also going to see a reduction compared to if you had just applied urea. But more importantly, when we get to Wednesday night, you're going to see a massive amount of increase in cost to you. So you're going to pay a lot more for a redu reduced response. <laughs> That's what this is saying. Either no, no additional response or reduction in response, and you're going to pay a lot more for it. And as we talked about with the, with the, cougar, or the cougar paper, you're going to load the soil with massive amounts of phosphorus that'll be there for a long time. Okay, and I can show that paper if you want to. In fact, let me, sh let me pull that up. I think I have it sitting here somewhere. What I'm talking about is a paper we've already gone over. It was written by a guy named C-O-G-G-E-R. Yeah, it's right here. Okay, so this Koger paper, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Biosolid applications to tall fescue have long-term influence on soil, nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus. What I'm talking about is this last table that we've already gone over. And it's, there's a Bray-1 extractable phosphorus six months and nine years after the final biosolid application of the surface of tall fescue plots. Now, in this study, if you remember, they applied biosolids year after year after year for, I think, 10 years. And in here, they have, and then and they went back and measured the, the soil phosphorus at the end of that 10 years. And then they did it 10 or nine years after that. Okay. So in here, we see the zero, ni zero nitrogen uh, and zero phosphorus, basically. So zero phosphorus. And then they have the biosolid products from cumulative application from 67 to 201 megagrams per hectare. And you see the, 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 the amount of phosphorus goes up in the top eight centimeters. It goes up in the, in the eight to 15 centimeters. And it goes up in the 15 to 30 centimeters depth. So a foot down. Okay. So... And it, that happens immediately after the application. And then you come back nine years later and you measure the phosphorus again. There was no phosphorus applied after that last application. They went back nine years later and they measured it again. And you still see these massively high uh, amounts of phosphorus in the soil. Huge amounts of phosphorus still in the soil nine years later. Okay. So I've said it before. I'll say it again. Say it how many times I, I need to. Stop applying phosphorus products with phosphorus in it, like biosolids, unless you have a phosphorus deficiency and you apply it based upon the phosphorus deficiency. Because right here in this study, we showed on this in the Coker paper, they showed huge levels of phosphorus elevated in the soil after many, many years of applications of biosolids that contain phosphorus. That's one reason. But the main reason for you all is, is that you're not gaining any, you're not getting any turf grass benefit from it. You're applying all this stuff and you're not getting any return for it and you're paying a lot more for it. Okay. So, you know, if you have an argument for it, let me hear it. But 
I don't see a very good reason to be applying natural organics unless you have a phosphorus deficiency and you apply it based upon the phosphorus um, deficiency level to, 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 you know, to supply that phosphorus. Okay. This is what we're talking about when he's, he's talking about when he's talking about greater than or equal to urea and he sees all these. I'm going to probably skip past most of this. Basically what it's saying is, is that in the first 30, zero to 30 days, the first month, you're going to have 100% from urea across the board. So 100%, it was you know equal to or greater than urea because it's urea, okay? When you're comparing urea to urea, it's 100% across the board. But when you go into the sulfur coats, you're basically saying that 50% of the time, 57% of the time, it was greater than or equal to urea and, and 43% of the time, it was less than urea in the first month, okay? So the opposite of this number is less than urea. So you see a large portion of these sulfur coats down here that are not responding in the first month. The number of times they rated the study in this particular case down here, this 18218, 86% of the time, the response in the first month was less than urea. And then you see it go up as you go into the second month, you know, being only 25% of the time it was less than urea. And in the third month, 0% of the time it was less than urea. It was always equal to or greater than urea. And then you go into, oh, that was the uh, one month. This was the first month, second month, third month. And then you go into the fourth month, 61 days out, you see... 57% of the time is greater than, so that's how you would read this, greater than urea in that case. It's not easy to follow this, I'll be frank. I wish I had the author on so he could explain this to me and I wouldn't screw it up, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Look at the urea split application. So the urea split one pound and one pound, you see um, not much going on the first uh, month, and even the second month. It was never equal to or greater than urea in the, in the second month. The third month is when it really shines, and then look at the fourth month. When you're splitting the urea applications, you really see a lot more, uh, you, a lot more benefit than if you apply the two pounds all in one shot. So what this is saying is, 86% of the time, applying a pound of urea in, in June and another pound of the urea in July, you 86% of the time in this study they found that the response was greater than if you just applied urea two pounds in June. So if you split it. You're getting more more return from it. So if you're on an eight, if you're on an eight, if you're on a four week cycle, which is un, pretty rare, if you're a long car operator, you're, you're good, no problem, because you're going to come back in four or five weeks anyway. If you're on a if you're on a four week cycle, but in most cases you're on an eight week cycle or a twelve week cycle, and, and you you're not going to come back to that property in four weeks to make that second application. So in that case, it wouldn't fit your schedule. But this is this is um, pretty good evidence to. To indicate that splitting, if you're going to apply two pounds in and you're as urea, which you know probably would never do nowadays, but if you would, if you're going to do that, splitting that up, you're going to see a benefit from doing that, but not necessarily at the beginning of the of the cycle. You're going to see that in the second month, third month, fourth month down the road. Anyway, that's the way to read that. The natural organics. Look at this. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer Milorganite. So. The um, natural organics, 14% of the time in the first month, it was greater than urea or equal to urea. So 86% of the time in the first month, urea was better. 50% of the, in the second month, urea was better. And only 14% only after you get out there in the third month, urea is better. But look at this. In four months out down the road, Milorganite never had a rating that was greater than urea in the four-month mark. So you're four months down the road on a slow-release natural organic milorganite, and you're not getting any ratings of the turf grass that are better than just using straight urea. It's pretty pathetic.
So I'm going to skip through this because that's basically the whole thing right here. I'm going to skip through this and go to the graphs. So here's the graphs. I'm going to read through this. And basically what, what I'm just going to show is, is that each of these graphs have the urea standard on them. Okay. This is not, they're going to show 94, 95, 94, 95. And they're going to have, they're, they're grouped sort of by class. So this is the sulfur-coated ureas, and this is, well, this one has UF in there. And then it has another sulfur-coated urea here. Then it has polymer-coated ureas and urea and so forth. Okay. It has the urea formaldehydes, and, you know, they didn't put it all in the same graph because graph it would just be a massive mess. But you'll notice in 94, the urea, which is the circle in each of these graphs, you'll see the ureas here. And then over here in 94, you see the exact same line. It's the exact same control. Okay, urea was the control in those cases. Okay, so just want to make sure it's clear when you're reading through this. I'm only going to direct you to a couple things. One is whenever urea was applied, you will not find anywhere on any of these graphs a rating that was below acceptable limits. Doesn't matter whether urea was applied at two pounds or the urea was split and applied one and one. The circle which is right, what I'm talking about is this urea circle-like legend here in both years, is always at or above the minimum acceptable turf grass limit. So, because we already know, and we'll, we'll drive this message home even more on Wednesday night, that urea is the least expensive nitrogen source, the question comes, why would I spend more for a nitrogen source when the nitrogen source I have is already resulting in an acceptable turf grass quality from June 1 out to 90 or 100 days out for the whole summer, basically. So June, July, August, and September in Georgia, the application of urea resulted in acceptable turf grass. So Mr. Salesman, why should I spend more for your polymer coat, for your sulfur coat, for your natural organic, when the, when the product I have is already giving me acceptable turf grass? That's the question I'd ask. And he's not going to show you any evidence. He or she. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> and if he does, here's evidence to the contrary. And I'm going to show you on Wednesday night even stronger evidence to the contrary. And tomorrow morning, there's going to be another paper that has natural organics in there that shows the same thing. So having said that, also, rarely, it does happen, but rarely, there will be um, a reduction in quality and, and acceptable quality below, quality below the acceptable limit from some other sources. I said that sort of convoluted. In most cases, all the other natural organic products, I'm sorry, all the other nitrogen products result in an acceptable turf grass. Okay, here you see this, this, uh, this sulfur coat here be below acceptable limits at the beginning, the first month or two. Here you see this polymer coat, this heavier coated polymer coat in the first month or two being unacceptable. Here's the UF2, the split application of the UF2, which was the neutraline chip that had methylene urea and urea in it, you'll see it be unacceptable for the first month or two. Okay, so occasionally at the beginning, you'll see these longer chain and slower materials result in an unacceptable turf at the beginning. But for the most part, after that happens, everything's fine. Everything's acceptable. And, that, and that's what I want to make sure we, we understand is that 
when, I, when, when we're talking about nitrogen sources and which one you should or shouldn't apply, I've said at the beginning, and I'll say it again, I'll say it multiple times, is that all these will result in acceptable turf grass. Pretty much all of them will. Very few of them will not benefit your turf grass in terms of a color response or quality response or growth response. They all probably will. No problem. The question is, at what cost? And this paper doesn't go over that. Okay. But I want to make sure it's clear because the remainder of the week is going to be a little bit more assertive. In no way I do I want to imply that the nitrogen source that you're using right now isn't going to work. It'll probably work. Definitely. But if you're spending $1,500 a ton on a polymer coat because you think it's going to result in better quality response compared to urea or ammonium sulfate, then we need to talk. Because there's not a whole lot of evidence to indicate that it will. Okay. And the evidence that, that will indicate that it will, which there's a little bit, not much. The evidence that does indicate it will can also be used to argue to use urea. Because the, the, the benefit from the polymer coat urea comes at an enormous cost, financial cost. It's not 5 or 10% more, 20% more. It's a lot more. Okay, so if you're going to get a 20% greater response from polymer-coated urea, the argument could be made, just apply 20% more urea. It's still significantly less expensive than applying polymer-coated urea. Okay, that argument could be made. Back to these charts. So that's what I'm talking about. You know, here's the natural organics, millorganite and the feather mill and all of the bone mill and whatever, whatever, whatever the other ones were. And you'll see at the beginning that millorganite was pretty slow in the first year to, to respond. Didn't, didn't respond in the first month anywhere near um, the urea. And it was nowhere near the acceptable limit. It was always below the acceptable limit in the first month or two. But after the first month, it was, the quality was acceptable. Okay? So you're paying more for the natural organic. You're putting it out in the polymer coats. You're putting them out. And the, and the reactive ones, you're putting them out, and the slowest ones are very slow to respond in the first month. That's what I'm talking about here. They're very slow to respond in the first month. After they get going, then the turf grass usually hangs on, and it's, it's fine. And for that, you're paying more. You're paying more for a slower release at the beginning and a similar release or similar turf grass response throughout the remainder of the year. So if you want to pay more for the nitrogen stores, to get a reduced response at the front and a similar response at the end as urea, that's your money. I wouldn't do that. Okay. So let me skip through. That's basically the gist of that. Let me skip through to the conclusions. There's a couple little key points I want to make sure that I hit on on the conclusions. Let me see if I can get to it. So. Here's some more of the natural organic stuff. The two natural or that and two the two nitrogen carriers with 100% nitrogen from natural organics, that's millorganite and the bone mill feather mill thing, resulted in lower visual quality on both years <laughs> relative to urea. Okay. In the mill millorganite also resulted in less total shoot growth and fewer mowings, so the turf grass wasn't responding well at all. Turf treated with the two bridge products, the quick release and the natural organic, showed average visual quality similar to that seen from urea, but total shoot growth 
exceeded that produced by urea in 95. Number of mowings was higher than urea in both years for N4 and in 95 for N3. And N4 and N3 were the, the two products that contained soluble nitrogen in them. 45% was from urea, and then the other 55% was from either. Um, Actually, more than that was from your. So, 45% from urea and then 39% from ammonical sources, and then only a small portion was from natural organics. Okay. Initial and intermediate visual quality ratings relative to urea were substantially lower for male organite in the bone mill feather mill. The N4 product, which again, the Ringer Supreme Lawn Fertilizer, which is a large portion of it is soluble in. Was 16% in 16%, only 16% of that it was from natural organics, demonstrated 100% of the ratings greater than urea. So 84% was soluble and 16% was natural organic. Interestingly, the next the other product, N3, with 39% from natural organics, exhibited less intermediate and long-term in release than did N4, even though it had uh, more natural organic in it. So anyway, natural, you know, the natural organics, when they're split with a lot of soluble in, tend to be more, suit, more comparable to urea. When they have 100% of the in as natural organic, we tend to show, they tend to not come close to their turf root quality that's acceptable, initially, at least at the beginning, and they tend to be comparable to urea. So you might as well just use urea. Okay, so now coming to the end, just a little bit left, guys. When, when all nitrogen carriers were compared with urea across all in classes and based on average annual visual quality, only one fertilizer produced greater visual quality in both years. That was UF3. So UF3 was the Scott's NPK Triform, the 18918 greens grade that had 58% urea in it and 30% methylene urea with 2% urea formaldehyde. So it was a, basically a 60% urea and 40% of it was reacted urea. And it was in a very small granule, a greens grade, very, very fine granule. That was the only product in all this study that resulted in an average annual visual quality um, greater than urea in both years. So if you want greater, <laughs> that would be like, What's that product called um, that has soluble ammonium sulfate and methylene urea? It's called, ah, um, oh, dang it, lost, skipped my mind here. There's a product in the market that has a homogenous granule that has methylene urea and some ammonium sulfate in it. it tends to have a pretty good response. It's kind of similar to that. And um, that's the only one that had any, any close, anything close to urea. Everything else was less than or equal to urea. That was the only one that was greater than urea. Nitrogen treatments with the highest long-term, so the four-month release, nitrogen release, were urea <laughs> split into one and one. So, you know, the nitrogen the, the, with the longest term was soluble urea, one pound and one pound, you know, June and July. And then UF1, which was Coron, one and one, or the PCU4, which was the one I just mentioned. Oh, no, it wasn't the one I just mentioned. It was the 150-day the uh, polymer coat. And then the uh, the Vigoro polymer coat. These exhibited 71 and 86% of the visual quality ratings greater than urea. But you, it also included urea split. <laughs> so it's, or Coron split. So 
if you want to do that, nitrogen with the highest long-term nitrogen release, it was it was the it was the very long-term polymer coat, or the forty-three-zero mini V coat, which was uh, from from Vicaro. It doesn't exist anymore. The least long-term visual quality. <laughs> I'm not going to get any sponsorships from Milorganite. The least long-term visual quality, which was. Zero to fourteen percent of the time, it was greater than urea. Resulted from milorganite, <laughs> the in the the ringer turf, which was um, the hydrolyzed feather mill with a little bit of a, um, a monocle nitrogen in it, which is this one, and then the Scotts MPK eighteen nine eighteen, and the sulfur coat one, which was the thirty nine zero Lesco Poly Plus. So that was the least long term visual quality. And then we'll get to the conclusions. Yeah, Andrew, Mesa, that's it. That's correct, Mesa. Thank you for putting that in the chat. Yeah, I've used Mesa quite a bit, and um, I like it. But that, it has ammonium sulfate in it. This one had urea in it. But it's kind of a similar concept where you're splitting a methylene urea with a soluble end source and putting it out. That's what they found here. That was the only one that... Um, that was the only one that had a response that was quality greater than urea in both years. Saying there's a lot of urea, 60% of it was urea. All right, conclusions. Great diversity in nitrogen release patterns as shown by Bermuda grass visual quality was apparent across nitrogen carriers, carrier classes, as well as within a class. Variation within a nitrogen class in terms of nitrogen release strongly suggests that the need to carefully evaluate each carrier for its release pattern, placement, or release pattern. Placement of a specific nitrogen fertilizer within an in-class provides only very broad indications as to expected in-release pattern. So just because it's a polymer coat and it says 45 days or 90 days, and then another one says it's 45 or 90 days or 60 days or 120 days, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be consistent. That's what this is saying. And I would say in general, that's probably pretty true even today. Just because it's a polymer coat doesn't necessarily mean it's more um, reliable or dependable in terms of its uniformity of release. Generally, I would say that's probably the case with, with polymer coats compared to sulfur coats. But nowadays, the SCUs or the XCU type product that are much more uniform, consistent, it's a smaller product, a smaller prill than the old sulfur coat, those are pretty good too. So it's hard to say that just because it's sulfur coat, you're going to have problems or you're going to have great things happen just because it's that. Okay, you can't really say that. Nowadays, one could probably make an argument against that nowadays. But... I would say in general, it probably holds true still even today. The recently developed uh, polymer coat, sulfur coat urea, and the, and the PC, well, what is this? The Scotts Poly S fertilization, as well as the polymer coat urea products, demonstrated substantial differences in initial and long-term in release. Higher turf quality in the um, three months, at three, or is that three months? Two, three, at three months was related to greater sulfur content of the coating and greater polymer weight, but not to the particle size of the sulfur coats. No single fertilizer provided both rapid initial end release and excellent long-term response. So you can't have best of both worlds. And I know a lot of people try to do that. A lot of blenders will try to do that. And I, th and I think you could probably achieve that if you, if you cut it with some soluble in, right? So if you had a polymer coat and applied it like two pounds, or even higher, but you had in that blend like 10% nitrogen from ammonium sulfate or something like that, or urea, so that the first application you had like a third of a pound or 
maybe a quarter of a pound around that number of, of nitrogen from urea, you'd help minimize that lag response after application. I think it can be done, but you got to be really careful how you do it. You want to make sure that you're getting something for the money you spend on it. Because, like this study said, there's no, no, no product resulted in both initial and long-term response very well. No single fertilizer did that. So if you have, you come across a salesman that wants to sell you something and says, well, this one releases and you're going to see a response in seven days and you're going to see a response 90 days out or 120 days out or whatever it is, I would be pretty skeptical. You might want to check your sources. I, I think it can be done, but not from a single product. It would have to be a blend of a soluble and a slow, something along those lines. Initial and intermediate responses were best from urea-formaldehyde reaction products containing high percentages of nitrogen as urea, ammoniacal or methylene urea. So a blend, what they're saying. The balance between rapid initial versus long end release within urea from aldehyde reaction products was altered by the percentages of methylene urea to long chain urea forms, incorporation of another slow releasing carrier, and or splitting applications of quick release in forms. So they're basically they're saying they're changing the, the length of the chain on the urea from urea form or methylene urea so that it's a little slower or a little quicker and they're blending that or just blending in a soluble end form into the actual fertilizer itself. That would help alleviate some of that problem. When 100% of the nitrogen was present, I put this in red, so if Millorganite's listening, um, I accept all sponsorships. When 100% of the nitrogen was present as natural organic nitrogen, neither initial nor long-term in-release compared favorably with urea for the two products evaluated. <laughs> I don't think I'm making any friends in Milwaukee. <laughs> so... Hey, I'm just a communicator. Remember, I'm not saying this. The paper said that. So do with it what you want. That was a very difficult paper. It's one of the more, and that's the reason I put it at the front of the nitrogen topic, because, man, it's hard to get through. I just wanted to get it out of the way. Because the other ones we're going to go over are much more simple to understand than that. Like I said, the one on Wednesday night is very straightforward. It's very, very easy to follow. Man, that one's not. Whew. That was challenging. Basically, the short and skinny of it is you can't get both initial response and long-term response from a single product. Okay. The methylene ureas and the sulfur-coated ureas are probably in that in that in that particular study were probably the go-to products, but they required a soluble component to really see a difference. The I remember the only one that differentiated itself from straight urea was the blend of a methylene urea with urea at 60% urea. That one had a little bit better quality than urea did on both years. Um, but none of the other ones really separated themselves out. So the take-home message is urea was the one to go with, not only from the cost, which they didn't go over in that paper, but from the turf grass response to the product. And this is one reason I've said for many, many years, if, you, if for, 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 um, Companies that want to do, you know, spray for pay work where they, you know, you just want to spray out some products or spray out some products and see what happens. You better not include urea in that study. If you, if you want to show your product works or your product is the shine, shines through or, you know, you want to, you know, promote that on a marketing flyer, you better not put urea in there because it, the odds are pretty good. It's not going to be any different than urea. 
after all these years, the turf response to urea or ammonium sulfate in many cases as well, but urea in particular. It's, it's hard to beat that, okay, in terms of the turf response. Clearly, there, are some, there is value to the slow-release materials in other areas, such as environmental risk and so forth, burn, turf burn. Those things can be greatly reduced. Um, but if applied correctly, the same risk exists with urea. You have very little risk with urea if you know how to do it and do it right, okay? It was a long one. That's the first day back after two week break. So I had a lot to go over. And I apologize if it didn't if I didn't make complete sense of it, but I I tried my best. I know that was gonna be a challenging one. Let me go through the chat. I'll answer any questions and that'll be it for the day. Uh let's see. Oh, it's also Looney and there's a handful that say they'd be interested in a membership. Oh, was he interested in improving his... Oh, the guy that talked to me at the... Uh, st- <laughs> the guy talked to me at the SFMA. He came up to me at the SFMA and he said, I'd like to talk to you. I said, sure. There was a lot of people behind us. There were like eight or nine, 10 people behind us. He said, I'd like to talk to you. I said, okay, hey, what can I, t- what can I help you with? And he said, well, I'd like to talk to you in private. <laughs> I said, okay. Talk to me in private. And he, he, never, he never talked to me in private. So I, it wasn't... Um, I don't know. I don't know if he wanted to improve his work or not, but um, you have to be you have to be aware that when I'm whenever I'm speaking with this this channel, as I, I maybe you recognize it by now, maybe you haven't. I don't know if you haven't. Let me make it clear: is that I have no interest, and in, I do not condone in any way ridicule or criticism of humans or the person themselves, even the the snaky salesman. Even those salesmen who you know when they come in, you're like, oh Lord, he's going to have another line for me today. I don't condone ridiculing those people or making fun of them or demeaning them. So I don't think it's constructive or beneficial to our society to do those things. But their claim is a total another matter. <laughs> if you're going to publish it in the scientific literature, to, including my work, it's all fair game to criticize and to use. I mean, it's, you know, we have to maintain some basic minimum integrity when it comes to the scientific model of turfgrass science. And in many cases, that comes from fierce criticism of the work. So I have no problem criticizing anybody's, anybody's work, and I have no problem promoting their work. As you said, I've, I've said many, many times, this is great work. This is a great paper. we got to go over it. This is fantastic. You've heard me say that many times. In some cases, it's not good work. And um, so uh, d- don't don't connect my criticism of the work or claim with criticism of the person. I have no interest in doing that and I don't condone it. Um, let's see what else. Yeah. The season's coming up quick, Mitch. Yep. It's here. It might be a little late on these, these nitrogen papers, but, um, this week should be a good starting point. And Wednesday night, like I said, is going to be, I think kind of help drive the message home and really provide some solid, um, confidence on which nitrogen sources you should be leaning on more than others because it goes over cost and price and gives you a better idea of you know longevity and things like that yeah so thank you mitch yeah it says i've been a big help from uh, a lot of misinformation yeah 
Dr. Shuck, is it saying that straight urea fed the grass as long as the coated urea? Oh, good question, Andrew. <laughs> it it is in a way saying that, yes. And you and if you're if you're on the fence about or not even on the fence, if you're if you're convinced that these long-term slow-release nitrogen sources result in long-term turf grass responses. Great, you'll see that on Wednesday night as well. But like I've said, when you do these comparisons, you have to include a reference soluble product. And when you do, you might be shocked at how long turf grass responds to straight, straight up urea, straight up ammonium sulfate. Because when you see these marketing claims, 60 day release, 90 day release, which is very common, 45 day release, these are all very, very common. That it, what they're doing is they're measuring the release in a glass jar on a table in a lab somewhere, which is fine. Well, you want to release it. But by that definition, urea is a one-day release. And that's the marketing behind it. If you think about it that way, you're like, well, wait a second. Urea is not a one-day release. Yeah, it really, urea is a one-day release. Probably a one, probably a 10-minute release. But I don't care about that. I care about the turf grass response to that nitrogen source. How long does the turf grass response last from that nitrogen source? So don't get fooled or indoctrinated into believing that these nitrogen, these long-term nitrogen sources are essential and required to have a long-term turf grass response to the nitrogen source. You will have a long-term turf grass response to those nitrogen slow-release sources. But you may also have a long-term response to the urea and to the ammonium sulfate. Absolutely, Andrew. And, and the, there's only been a couple papers that looked at the actual longevity by week. And this paper sort of hinted at it. It looked like at the first month, the second month, third month. And no offense to, the, to Dr. Carroll. He's a great man and you know, great scientist. And you know, like I said, he, he's, no, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. But it's, it's not as clear-cut as week to week to week. How, how many weeks does the turf grass response last for? And then Dr. Soldat did a paper, I think it's in the ITSRJ, that was kind of hit, it around, hit around that a little bit. And then there's a paper on Wednesday that went over week after week after week. How many weeks will you actually see the turf grass respond to these sources? And that's, I'm sure I'm wrong, but it's the only paper I'm aware of that looked specifically at that metric. And so we're going to go over that on Wednesday night. Oh, and Andrew says he might be interested in membership too. Well, we'll see. I might be interested in doing that. What I, we'll, we'll, we'll see. If I get enough momentum behind it, and we'll, we'll talk about doing some memberships, and then we'll, for that membership, I got to think, you know, what would, be, what would be of interest to you that you could gain, you know, that would be worth the money that you spend on it. So I'm all ears about, um, you know, any, any recommendations you all might have uh, of something you'd, you'd be willing to pay for that you're not getting now from the channel. Um, be frank i'm not very good at that stuff but i'll do my best where where i can so tomorrow uh i haven't selected the paper yet but it'll be nitrogen I, there'll probably be a morganite component in there somewhere <laughs> uh but until then i'll be back tomorrow uh, if you need to get a hold of me don't forget the phone number 859-444-4234 want to set up a meeting with me it's calendly.com slash travis until tomorrow morning be kind thanks so much for being here see you tomorrow Bye.